This episode is brought to you by Saris. Saris is a company in Madison, Wisconsin that creates amazing functional pieces of art for your car to transport your bike. They are efficient. They're for cyclists, by cyclists. It's an accessory for your car and your lifestyle, literally an extension of who you are. It just looks good with or without a bike. They're lightweight and durable, and the accessibility factor is huge. Even our young kids are able to move the bike rack when they need to get in the rear of the car or whatever reason. Um, It's so easy, so functional. So check it out. We have a giveaway. We actually have a rack that we're giving away, compliments of Sarah's. So check out swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway. So thank you all for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day. And it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference in our health, happiness, and success. In this episode, we interview Kim Dynan. Kim is the author of the book, The Yellow Envelope, which tells the story about what happened when she and her husband sold all of their things and took off on the journey of a lifetime. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. I have a great guest for you today. Her name is Kim Dynan. Hi, Kim. Hi. I'm so glad you're here. You have a great story. I'm looking forward to digging into it. Thank you. So Kim is the author of the new book, The Yellow Envelope, which is a really fun tale about adventure and travel and all sorts of cool things. So she is a writer and her Content has appeared in Parks and Recreation Magazine, Northwest Travel Magazine, and a bunch of others. Her popular blog is called So Many Places, and it was named as one of the best outdoor blogs by USA Today, which is very cool. So congratulations on all your many adventures. Thank you. So let's talk about you. Let's talk about the book, first of all. All What is this book about? So the book is, it's a true story, it's a memoir, and uh, it's called The Yellow Envelope because, you know, as the story goes, uh, back in 2012, my husband and I, we were living um, out in Portland, Oregon, and we had this really wonderful life that we loved. You know, we were living in a great city, and I had um, a great job. My husband, Brian, had a great job. We owned a house, kind of like the whole whole thing, right? Right, the American dream. The American dream. (laughs) Yeah. And from the outside, you know, I think it really looked like we had it all together. But inside, for me, internally, I really felt like something was missing in my life. I mean, since I was a little girl, I had always loved to write and I had dreamed of being a writer. And I'd always wanted to travel and I'd never really had the opportunity. And then when I did finally sort of have the, you know, funds, I guess, to be able to do it. It, I was working a nine to five job and I just never had the time. And so I sort of realized that this, these two big things that I wanted out of life, which was to write and to travel, um, they weren't happening. And that if I didn't sort of make it happen, uh, they probably never would. So what kind of work were you doing at the time? So I was working for the city of Portland and the environmental world. I was 
um, a, the sustainability coordinator for the Portland Water Bureau. So, you know, <laughs> it's very was, important and boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing is, like, I did really believe in the work. I mean, environmental work is important to me, but it wasn't like the thing, you know, right. like, even though I believed in it, it wasn't the thing. So, yeah, I just sort of, I used to have this feeling when I was at work that, like, well, like people would like want to take me out to lunch and ask me how my, I got my job. And I always felt like such a fraud because I just thought, you know, I don't even want to be here. And like there are people that are desperate to be here. And I need to kind of like get out of the way so that someone who's meant to have this job will have it. That's <laughs> and so kind of, funny. Yeah. I know how you feel. That's the whole time I was a lawyer, I felt that way. I thought, I am a fraud. <laughs> yes. I mean, I felt that way every day I showed up at work and, you know, now it's funny because with the book, I have to do a lot of promo or I get to do a lot of promo and things that would have made me really nervous in my job. I just don't get nervous because I feel so confident in what I'm doing because I know it's the thing that I'm like supposed to be doing. Right. And that confidence just exudes when you know you're standing where you need to be. I I feel the same way. I mean, I you put me in a courtroom to public speak and I was dying. You put me in front of a crowd of triathletes or just women, you know, who want to share their struggles. And I don't even, my heart doesn't even beat harder. You know, it's just, it's so different. Exactly. Exact same thing with me. I used to panic in front of crowds at work when I had to give presentations. And now I can stand up in front of a room full of people and yeah, I don't even skip a beat. I don't, people ask me if I get nervous and I don't. And it's so weird because I thought I had like this fear of public speaking, but like, in fact, I think I just had like this fear of like being realized for this fraud. Like (laughs) I felt that I was, you know? Yeah. Well, so, okay. So you did the day job. That's what I always called mine, the day job. So you did that for how long and, and when did you start preparing for the exit, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, I did that from the time I, you know, graduated college in two thousand and three to until when I, um, quit my job in 2012. So, um, you gave it a good shot. Really? I did. You know, I did a decade, a decade. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but then, you know, what happened was I decided that I was going to kind of take this huge leap of faith and quit my job and sell all my stuff and convince my husband to kind of come along with me. And, um, so, that's what we did. We quit our jobs. We sold literally everything we owned and we bought a one-way ticket to Ecuador with this idea that we would kind of like travel the world for as long as we could, like till the money ran out, ran out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, that I would take a shot at writing as well, which I mean, now I, I kind of, it's sort of amazes me that it all came together the way it did, because at the time, I mean, there was like literally no, evidence that this was going to work in my favor, you know, like I didn't have a single byline. I hadn't, you know, I had always sort of thought of myself as a writer, but I wasn't actually writing, which is like the thing you have to do. So, but I had started my blog Uh and I had started my blog as a way to kind of, um, like share this dream, like sort of like to make myself accountable, you know, like I sort of kind of told the world through my blog that this is what I wanted to do. And then I kind of couldn't 
back down after that because there were people that were kind of expecting me to do this thing. So, you know, it kind of like gave me, made me a little more brave than I think I would have been otherwise. It's funny how blogs can do that. I mean, when I started Swim Bike Mom, my first entry was, so I have decided to become a triathlete. And, you know, that was like the start of it. And people start to read it and you think, oh, crap, I have to go do this thing. I'm telling people I'm going to (laughs) do. Well, I think there's something really powerful about kind of declaring what you want and and naming it. You know, I I remember I was so afraid to call myself a writer um, because I just felt like I didn't deserve the title. But, you know, when I started writing, I thought, well, I am a writer. I mean, what else does a writer do but write? I mean, I'm not a successful writer, but I'm, uh, you know, I've started. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the, this guy, Jeff Goins, I don't know if you've heard of him. He, oh, yeah. He, um, I, I read his ebook back in 2011, 2012, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write, you know, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. And one of his little ebooks, and it wasn't even a long ebook, but it said, hey, guess what? Writers write. And I thought, oh, that's really like so simple. But I think a lot of times when you want to be a writer, you think it's this whole process and you have to like sit down with your typewriter and prepare and crack your knuckles. But really, you just need to sit down and write. It doesn't matter. Writers write all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. And it it doesn't, right. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't, you know, matter what you write. I mean, it's just, just like anything, it's just all about kind of practice, you know, about sort of sitting down and putting the words down on paper. If even when, you know, there are sometimes those magical days where the words just flow out of you or you feel like you've just like been hit by your muse or whatever, but for the most part, it doesn't work that way. You know, you're just kind of sitting down, forcing your way through it until you get to like that spot where it does start to flow a little bit more easily. But I used to run marathons and hopefully will again someday, but you know, it's like running, you know, for, you might run six miles before you finally find your stride and it gets comfortable. And same with writing, you know, you kind of have to sort of push through the hard parts before it starts to get a little easier. So how long did you blog before you took off on the voyage? So I started the blog in 2010 and then I left in 2012. And really my husband and I, you know, for three years, we pretty much made this our main focus of like kind of shedding our possessions and saving money. And, you know, it's not like we just decided to do it and then quit the next day. So it was was, like a three-year prep, really? It was a three-year process. Yeah. So how did that process feel when you started, like you said, shedding your possessions? I mean, it felt a lot of different ways. I mean, I never sort of shook the feeling that maybe I was like insane. Like I just (laughs) lost my mind and I was like royally screwing up my future. And, uh, you know, that I was making some sort of like, you know, mistake that I would never be able to recover from. So like that fear sort of didn't go away until I got out on the road and realized that that was like such a, sort of narrow way of looking at life. Um, but you know, it was, it was also like this really exciting time. It felt good to kind of send things out the door. It felt good to save money. It felt good to like be working really, really hard toward this one gigantic goal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you know, and I, but I felt so many things. I remember I felt so guilty, like, you know, Kim, why can't you just be happy with the life you have? Like you have so much and, you know, why are you taking all this for granted? And, 
And like, I sort of understood that from a kind of logical perspective, but there was this like deeper thing in me that just wasn't, you know, it was like, wasn't enough. Right. And I just had to sort of let myself be okay with wanting something else. I think that is something that we, especially as women struggle with, like the fact that we want more for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if your soul is saying, I need something more, or if your heart wants more or whatever, and we beat ourselves up and say, you shouldn't because you have X, Y, and Z. And it's that whole idea that we shouldn't pursue what we really want because what we have should be enough. And I hate that. I I, do too. The guilt drives me insane, but then um, I don't know how we get past it except to do like what you, you exactly you did. You knew it wasn't right for you and you moved on. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're just sort of conditioned to feel that way, which is just so sad. I mean, I have a daughter now and I hope that she, <laughs> you know, I hope she, she knows that she's like worthy of what she really wants, but you know, like I say in the book, um, that, you know, we don't really have to know why, like wanting it is enough. Like that's all you need. You just need to want it. You yeah. don't have to explain it to anybody else. So I know you probably did have to explain it to some people. What, <laughs> did you have family that you had to explain this to? Cause I can just see me explaining this to my family and how that would go. So what about the people? Well, so the, I mean, the first person I had to explain it to was my husband who was quite surprised that this was something that I was serious about. Um, and he had kind of seen me through these other, like, um, like many uh, passions, I guess you could call them or like, uh, like small obsessions that I would sort of throw myself into these things. Like triathlons was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, vegan baking was one of them. (laughs) Like, just like these, like things that, Um, that I think that I just would commit myself to because I knew I needed something more and I was afraid to like go for the thing I really wanted. And so it was safer to kind of like try to get good at something that I didn't want so much, but you know, so I would kind of like, um, jump around to these little things that I would become kind of like passionate about for a while and then drop. And so at first I think he was like, you know, well, how do I know that this is any different than these other things that you <laughs> wanted? And I just had to be like, well, it just is like, you just have to trust me. Like he always knew that I was a writer and like wanted to write, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I had not really been much of a writer since he'd known me. So to find, to just suddenly sort of declare that this was the thing I wanted to do. And I think he always knew I wanted to travel as well, but it just wasn't realistic for us. So, so, you know, I think what happened was that I just kind of like proved it over time, you know, like I, this is like the thing I didn't drop the thing that I wouldn't let go of until finally, you know, he was just sort of like, on board with it. Not, not a hundred percent. I mean, I think he was always kind of like, not sure if we should be doing this, but you know, he straight up told me like, you know, I believe in you. And if this is the thing that you need to do to like, see, to, to try to kind of reach your dream, then let's do it. You know? So that's pretty amazing that, that he did that. Did you find that in the days, months, years, I guess, leading up to this decision, that you became really hard to live with. Like when you were, when you were, I don't want to say suffering, but I think in anyone that's not fulfilling their purpose 
is in a form of suffering to a degree. Like when you were going to your day job, was your relationship with him strained because you weren't happy? Yeah. And I, and, you know, unfairly, I think I blamed some of that unhappiness on him um, instead of like looking inside of myself and realizing like, hello, but you know, this was a lesson I actually learned on the road. And I think I sort of knew it, but never didn't actually sort of embody it um, at the time, which is that like, of course you're the only one who can make yourself happy. But because I wasn't happy because I wasn't living my, my purpose. And I do, I do truly believe that for me, I don't think everyone else, necessarily is lucky enough to know sort of what they're meant to do. But I, I felt that I always felt that. So to not be living it was, was, was bad. And yeah, I was not a fun person to live with. I mean, for, I was incredibly regimented. (laughs) I never let loose. I had a ton of anxiety because I knew what I wanted to do, but I was too afraid to admit it. And so because I sort of knew it and ignored it, this anxiety built up. And the more I sort of ignored it, the stronger the anxiety got. So by the time I kind of had this moment where literally it was, my life was so uncomfortable living with this truth, <laughs> like that discomfort was stronger than the terrifying, uh, idea of sort of like changing my life completely. And <laughs> like yeah. when I finally got to that point, um, yeah, I was like, not a very fun person. <laughs> Not at all. So this may be too personal of a question, and I can certainly cut it out if you don't want to answer it. But was there any part of you that was thinking about selling all your stuff and going by yourself? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, the thing was, like, I knew that I was going to do this thing whether Brian came with me or not. Okay. And, like, I know how that might make me sound, but... I knew I had to do it. I had to do it. I had to do it, period. And that desire to to do it was stronger than everything else. It was stronger than making sure my marriage stayed intact. It was stronger than my desire to, like, please Brian above myself. You know, Mm -hmm. it was stronger than my desire to please anybody. I mean, like you asked earlier, like (laughs) explaining it to people. I mean, my mom, she would beg me not to go. She'd be like, just take all the money you saved and buy a bigger house. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's not the point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so very few people understood and yeah, I, I knew I would go with or without Brian. And so ultimately it just kind of became his decision. Like, do you want to come or not? You grab the goldfish and you're like, who's coming with me? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And you know, as I say it, there's this piece of me that feels like sort of bad about it, but then there's this other piece of me that's like, no, you did what you had to do. Like there are times in life where you just do what you have to do. And it, that was one of those times. Well, and I mean, when you look back on your life, when you're 80 years old, you're going to be glad you made that decision. And I think so many of us play it so very safe for other people, for appearances for just because we spent a ton of money on law school and we mm-hmm. just sit there and exist, even though there's something pulling at us very hard and very loudly. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, whatever heat you get for that kind of decision, I mean, at the end of the day, when you're in your rocking chair sitting on your front porch and you're 80, mm-hmm. you're going to be glad you did. Totally. Yeah. And- yeah. And I always say that those things like those bumps in the road or whatever, the naysayers, the obstacles that you kind of have to overcome like that when you're on the right path, those things are in your way to sort of prove to yourself how badly you want something. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and that's what those things did for me. You know, when I was able to sort of push forward, even with all of the, these sort of outside voices telling me that I shouldn't, I became stronger by the day because I just sh- proved myself that in the face of that, I could keep moving forward. So what is selling your all your belongings and tra- hitting the road to write and travel the world? What does that look like? And what was your time frame? I mean, did you say, we're going to do this for a year? We're going to do this forever? <laughs> what did yeah. that look like? Well, like we hoped we would be able to do it for a year because it, in, in our minds, we were like, it's not worth it to like give up our jobs and everything. Like if we can't do it for at least a year. Um, and, but we hoped that maybe we could go longer. And, you know, of course we didn't, we would say things like, well, maybe we'll do it forever. We'll just like figure it out along the way. And, you know, there wasn't like a clearly defined end point because we didn't know how everything was going to unfold. And, you know, it's like, one of the things that always sort of depressed me about being at work and in my cubicle and everything was that I felt like I could sit down at my desk and I knew that for the next 30 or 40 years, Monday through Friday at these times, I was going to be there. Like I knew where I was going to be. There was like no spontaneity left in my life. Like no, um, no room for just like, magical things to happen. And, and so one thing that was important to me was that if I was going to take this big leap into the unknown, like I didn't want to have it all planned. Like I wanted to sort of leave things open so that anything could happen. Mm -hmm. And that was was so like, so not my personality at that that (laughs) point. Like I was like, so type A. So the fact that like, I even sort of had the wherewithal to know that that would be important seems like a little bit of a miracle. Yeah. That's terrifying to me. It's terrifying. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was terrifying to me too, you know? Um, but I, I just sort of tried to like embrace that. Like, I mean, I would have these like mental battles back and forth, like where my head, my one side of my head would be like, you're going, you know, you're ruining your life. You'll never find a job again. Like you're destroying your future. And then like the other side of my brain would be like, listen, Kim, you're not going to be unemployed for the rest of your life. Like there will be some employers who will find that traveling is a benefit, you know, like I would like go back and forth and just, you know, I just didn't even know like what part of myself I could like trust. I just had to trust this like strong, strong pool that was like leading me out into the world. So when you heard, when you felt that voice inside of you that was saying go, it was louder than the fear that said, don't go. Yes. A hundred percent louder. I mean, it wasn't at, it sort of made itself known over time, right? Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't listen to it. And so it got louder (laughs) and then then I ignored it still. And then it got even louder and um, it refused to be ignored. Yeah. Okay. So you guys, you said you went to Ecuador. So you, you sold all your stuff. You had enough resources that you perceived to be for about a year. Right. And that was like, how, what, what, there was no plan. So what was the plan? (laughs) What was the plan? So, okay. So we, we bought a one-way ticket to Ecuador because that was like the, that was the cheapest ticket we could find, um, one-way ticket that we could find. And the only plan at that point was that we had, um, Uh, So a few months down the road, I had, I knew that I had to be in India because I had agreed to do this thing called the rickshaw run, which is like a, yeah, yeah, it's like an unsupported 
race, although you don't win anything, but you drive a three-wheeled motorized rickshaw through India. And I had agreed to do this with these two other women that I'd never met before. They also had travel blogs and we had kind of connected online because we were all sort of doing the same thing. We were all quitting our jobs and traveling around the same time. Um, So I knew I had to be in India for that. But between those open months of, you know, it's like, August when we landed in Ecuador and I had to be in India in January. Um, we just thought, okay, well, we'll take the bus. I mean, it's sort of amazing that we didn't have any like serious, but like now that I think about it, I'm like, what the hell did you think you were going to do? Um, I think we just thought that we would just kind of see the world. Like we would take buses and we would go to different towns and maybe we would get an apartment or, um, and you know, um, and I would try to write like whatever that meant. <laughs> I don't I mean, I don't know. It, it's kind of like having a baby, like where the same thing happened to me when my daughter was born, where I felt like I spent all the time thinking about the nine months of pregnancy. And then I literally remember looking down at her the day she was born. And I was like, Oh God, like, what do I do now? <laughs> like I spent all this time <laughs> planning, you know, for, and then now you're here. And I didn't right. ever really think like about the rest of your life. Um, it That's was kind exactly of, my yeah. experience with motherhood too. Like I, <laughs> when I had James, I just, I, I literally only thought about the point where he appeared. <laughs> right. And yes. it, nothing had occurred to me what happens when you have, they're eight and nine now, both of my kids, and <laughs> nothing occurred to me about summer camp. You know, right. where do you put them in the summertime? <laughs> yeah. So yes. funny. So funny. Yes. And that, so that was also my experience traveling. And to be honest, I mean, we hit the ground in Ecuador and after this like honeymoon period of being like, oh my gosh, this is our life now. I mean, like stuff went south real quick. <laughs> like, that was like Everything happens. I mean, like everything happens. Like we, I got incredibly homesick, duh, but I hadn't really considered that. You know, I, I just had like this in total identity crisis and all on all fronts because I mean, there were so many things like, first of all, I didn't even write, like I always felt a fraud, like a fraud in my job, but I didn't realize how much I identified with my job and like that I was this sustainability coordinator, this, you know, professional person who provided for herself and made a good living and bam, all that was out the door. You know, like all of a sudden I didn't have any friends that I was communicating with on a regular basis. All that stuff was out the door all of the stuff that I owned, which I'd always kind of thought of myself as a minimalist. Like I didn't really need my stuff, but then when it was gone, I realized that like, you know, I used those things around me to sort of like make a statement about who I was. Like you could walk into my house and see, Oh, she's a runner. She loves to read. She likes to cook, you know, here's like her decorations. And, um, I used it as, you know, like, like we all do. I mean, as a sort of, um, let those things, speak for me and bam, those are all out the door. And then like the biggest thing was my relationship with my husband, because, you know, we had met in college. We got married when I was 25 years old. I had always wondered in the back of my mind, if that I had always known that I hadn't really sort of learned who I was on my own. Right. And that had been the biggest regret of mine. And now here we are out in the world spending 24 hours a day together with this sort of regret that I've carried with me. And I started to wonder, like, 
do I even want to be married? I mean, is this, did I just marry, like, am I just married because that's like sort of the the thing you were supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Just like I did all the other things you were supposed to do in life, you know? And I sort of really started questioning, like, what decisions have I made in my life that were truly mine versus decisions that I sort of, I made because those are the decisions that everyone makes. Yeah. And I kind of re- evalu- started reevaluating every single thing in my life, which, you know, was probably the most difficult thing that I've done in my adult life is really taking a hard look at everything and, and, and like letting myself be honest about the things that I want to hold on to and the things I wanted to let go of. Do you think when there was something in your mind, when you went to Ecuador, when you started this journey, that once you got on the journey, you'd be rocking and rolling and start writing. And then it was completely unexpected that you had to like deal with these other emotions. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I just always thought that like, oh my gosh, this is my dream. So once I'm like living my dream, everything's just going to be beautiful and wonderful and I'm going to be happy all the time. And you know, (laughs) like that's what I thought because I didn't, if I would have maybe like critically (laughs) spent some time critically thinking about it, I would have maybe known better. But, um, I think that, that, that was sort of like the simple way I thought about it. Like here, this, here's my big dream. And once I meet this dream, then everything's going to be perfect. And that's, I say that like a lot of my book is about sort of, um, a dream and then how the reality of living the dream sort of slam up against each other Mm -hmm. because that, that's what it was for me. And like, you know, in the end, like everything did work out better, like bigger and better and more amazing than I could have ever imagined. But at this moment, first hitting the ground, not having the benefit of years of, um, the years to come, you know, um, it, it seems like a big disaster. And I wondered if, uh, I had just made the biggest mistake of my life. So your book title, it says one gift, three rules and a life changing journey around the rule world. What are these, what is the gift and what are the three rules? All right. So the gift is right before my husband, Brian and I, right before we left home to set out on this trip, uh, some friends of ours gave us a gift and it was a yellow envelope and inside the gift was a thousand dollars and um, a letter with instructions to give the money away as we traveled around the world. And and there were three rules, which was don't overthink it, share your experiences if you want to, and don't feel pressured to give it all away. So we kind of set out on this world. And not only am I going on this, like obviously very sort of personal journey, though I wasn't necessarily expecting that at the time. Um, but we also kind of then set out with this, um, gift that we had to give away as we traveled, you know, all around the world. And, and it led to some really, um, interesting moments because I I think just like so many things, like, you know, I think when we got this gift, we thought, oh, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be easy to do this. And, and what we found is that actually it was really pretty difficult to, to take this money and give it away, um, for so many reasons. I mean, we didn't understand the cultural norms around giving in the different countries that we were in. We didn't speak the language, you know, we didn't want to be appear patronizing Mm -hmm. or, um, and so, and so it was really hard, but, but once we sort of like, just like everything kind of fell into the groove of 
and I think became more confident with ourselves and um, more confident in the world, like it also became easier. Well, how did your relationship with Brian change? I mean, obviously when you got to Ecuador, things were kind of weird, but then, you know, you said it all ended up really great. So what were some of the things you guys worked on along the way and and how did it end up great in the end? Well, so, I mean, it's kind of started getting weird in Ecuador and then it just got like kind of worse and worse as we moved down through South America. Um, And then when I flew to India to do that rickshaw run, um, Brian also came to India, but, you know, we kind of parted ways um, and really like very sort of purposely parted ways. Like we said, okay, listen, like we were both miserable at that point and we just said, we're going to take this time apart and we're going to just allow ourselves to have space and make any decision that feels right and true. And if that decision is that this relationship doesn't suit us anymore, either one of us, then that's like the decision that we're allowed to make. So we actually kind of separated on the road, um, for a little bit. And, and while I was traveling throughout India, I mean, I just, I feel like it's so cliche to have like these sort of epiphanies in India. But that happened to me, I mean, over and over and over again. And, um, but probably the biggest thing that I realized was that, um, like, because I was always type A, I, I had always been sort of like the one that controlled things, right? Like I made the plans, I paid the bills, I just kind of did all those things, not because Brian made me, but because I, by nature, took control and I didn't really give him like the space to take control, right? Mm -hmm. And so I sort of started to resent him for that without really realizing it or thinking that like he couldn't like function without me, right? Like this was like sort of my belief and it was wrong, Um, so when we kind of split up in India, like what I realized was a couple of things. One was that, like I said before, I wanted to know that I had been the kind of the, that I had made the decisions in my life that life hadn't just sort of like made them for me. And what I realized driving through India was that I always had control over my life. And that in fact, the only thing that I ever had control over was me and my decisions. And that at any time I could change a decision that I had made and that I had in fact, utter total freedom because if something wasn't right for me, I could change it, which is so simple, but I had never really realized that before. And then when Brian and I kind of came back together after the rickshaw run, I realized too that like, you know, he had had this extraordinary journey of his own where he traveled all throughout India on his own. And he didn't just crumble and die when I wasn't (laughs) around because of course he could handle those things on his own. It's just that I never gave him this freaking space to do it. Like it was my fault, right? Like I was the one, I was the one who stood in my own way. And I was my own barrier to all of these things that I sort of blamed on other people, like my husband. And I know that that sounds terrible, you know, and it was terrible. And I didn't even necessarily realize I was doing it. Uh, But then when I did realize it, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I mean, I don't think you're alone in this. I mean, if I go on a trip or something, I call my husband dad of the year because, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of run the stuff around here when I'm here. And then when I go out of town, I'm like, well, 
obviously the house is going to blow up and everything's going to fall <laughs> apart. Like, but right. then I, you know, I come back and the house is cleaner than I left it. The groceries right. are stocked. They've done some amazing project or they've gone to the mountains to see, you know, the animals. And yeah. I'm like, okay, dad of the year. And it's, it's very similar because I think, you know, he can't possibly do anything without me. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, he does even better. <laughs> Right. Me. <laughs> right. Like, oh, maybe I need to just get out of the way more often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think that's such a true statement. And I don't think you're alone there at all. Um, that a lot of times we think we're controlling and we are controlling, you know, the people around us and it's making us and them crazy. Right. Like one of the biggest things I sort of learned in India was that I was driving that rickshaw and it broke down all the time, like 12 times a day. And (laughs) we didn't know how to fix it. So what happened was that we just sort of had to rely on the kindness of strangers around us. People would come out of the woodwork to help us fix Mm -hmm. our rickshaw. And I had this moment where I thought, you know, back in Oregon, if my car broke down, I could call AAA, I could call Brian, I could call any number of my friends. I always had a backup plan, you know, and because I always had a backup plan. I never sort of allowed the universe to kind of surprise me or to show me that it was there to support me. Right. And in India, I didn't have a backup plan and everything worked out magically, beautifully, wonderfully anyway. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, why did I always think that, that things would fall apart if I wasn't, if I didn't have a plan, like maybe in fact that things could actually turn out better and bigger and more wonderful if I don't have a plan. Like maybe if I let sort of the serendipitous wonder of the world, <laughs> you know, play out in front of me without trying to control it and intervene, maybe things will be bigger and better and more beautiful than I expected. And that's exactly what happened. So after, um, after India and you and Brian reconnected, where did you go after that? And kind of what was your relationship like at that point? So we, what we did was when we reconnected in India, we actually rented an apartment and we just stayed there for like three months. And it was exactly what we needed because moving around, you know, so quickly, it just gets really exhausting. And so we just reconnected, you know, I, I, I started, that was when I really started focusing truly on writing. I I sat down and I wrote the first couple of chapters of what would become the yellow envelope. And I started running again on a regular basis, like all these things that I'd stopped doing while we were traveling that really were self-care, you know, that made me feel like me. I started doing all those things again and I just kind of like realigned. And then, um, and then we went to Nepal and we walked the Annapurna circuit, which is this, like, I don't remember exactly how many miles over 200 miles. Um, in the Himalaya mountains. And it was just like, oh my gosh, the most beautiful, magical experience. Wow. Yeah. And then and, we kept going from there. <laughs> and so did you end up staying a year? How long were you gone? So we did, we, we ended up on the road for three years. Wow. Yeah. And, and one of those years we were overseas for two years and then kind of in the middle of all of that, we ended up sort of just randomly, I mean, we just kind of submitted our name into the hat, like so many other people. And we ended up getting this job with Backpacker Magazine. Um, So we flew back to the States and our job was to um, hike and camp all over the USA and give presentations about like backpacking. (laughs) And it was awesome. So, so kind of in the middle of our travels, we, we spent eight months doing that and 
we went to 47 of the lower 48 states and had an uh, incredible time. That's awesome. So when, how old is your daughter? She is 20 months old. Oh. So I was in, um, we were actually in Mexico when I got pregnant and I spent my first trimester in Mexico before we came back to the States. And so are you guys rooted and kind of staying still for a while? Well, we are for now. I mean, we've been home, you know, for, for two years now and yes, but you know, I don't know. Like I, I feel like I'm always like, so kind of shady when I'm saying this part, cause I do have sort of plans in the works for my next book, which would take me on the road with my daughter. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not set in stone. So I don't really know what's going to happen next. I have this dream about, it's very similar. It's, well, it's not, I wouldn't call it a dream because I'm only like half serious about it, but I, I have this vision of selling everything and getting a sailboat Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and going to, and I said that to my husband, he was like, what, what will the kids do for school? And I said, well, you have a PhD. I have a law degree. Can't we teach? Right. They're going to get a great education. (laughs) I mean, you know, but I have this feeling that, cause I, I had a very similar situation and upbringing as you. I mean, I got, I went straight from my dad's house to marriage. I mean, I got married at 21 and um, never lived on my own. And so I have that very big pull to to explore and to leave as well. Um, you know, with, with having two kids who are eight and nine, it's definitely not as much of an option, but at the same time, it totally is. And I think that's where we often draw the line on, you know, societal norms. Like we could totally buy a sailboat and teach our children. Totally. Totally. And people do it. And actually like what I want to write my next book about is kind of that it's like adventuring as a mother, as a parent about, you know, I think it's like if, if people have these adventures, they're sort of like allowed to have them when they're by them single or, you know, married, but no kids. But like, you know, once you have children, it's kind of expected that like you just sort of buckle down, you know, like the fun's over kind of thing. And, um, and, and I think that, uh, that sort of on, if you were to pick apart like men and women that like men are kind of allowed to have their big adventures on their own, even if they have kids like Bill Bryson, he hiked the Appalachian trail. No one asked him where his kids were, but if, um, a mother were to do the same thing, I think we're just held to a different set of standards and I don't think it's fair. And I sort of want to bust that whole idea that we can't do things like this with our children. I mean, for me, like traveling was the, my, the biggest education of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, like I learned so much about myself, about the world, different cultures, history, everything. And children, they will have the same experiences on the road. I mean, of course they're going to be a little different because they're with a nuclear family, but, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so possible. Like there's this family right now and they're backpacking the Appalachian trail. They're through hiking the Appalachian trail. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they have, they're with their one year old. And I'm just like, Oh my goodness. I think they've gotten a lot of crap. They've gotten a lot of crap, but you know, they're, they're, they're doing it. Their baby is happy. And I'm like, you are defining what it means to be a mother. You know, you're redefining what it means to be a a, a family, um, yeah. that you can still do. I'd like, to me, it's so in- inspirational. Well, let me tell you what I was doing with a one-year-old. I was sitting in Atlanta traffic in my suit that was too tight, miserable, picking up my child from daycare, 
um, you know, the Appalachian Trail sounds like a better life for that one-year-old than <laughs> sitting in a totally. car seat. <laughs> I know. It, that's the thing. Like, why? It's just, we are, it's like, I, I just, it's so backwards to me that, like, why are doing these things where we're, we're spending all day at work, apart from our family, we're work in so many cases, we're working just to maintain the life that we have without even like really saving anything. Um, why is that all sort of socially acceptable, but kind of jumping off of that track to do something else that would bring you like more freedom, more joy, more time with your family. uh, Why is that not okay? (laughs) Like, I don't don't know. know either. I think it's so it's I think there's just, a there's there's a sense of jealousy too though. I mean and and I think people want to cling to their sense of responsibility and right. you know I, I'm totally jealous of what you did, but I, I'm more like right on instead of that stupid. <laughs> and I think right, a right. lot of people want to I mean it makes people feel bad too, I think to a degree. I mean, when I walked out of the legal profession last year, all of my lawyer friends were like bummed. They're like, Oh man, aren't you lucky? You know? And it, it wasn't really a stroke of luck at all. It was just a choice. And I, you know, a lot of them were really kind of jealous and were kind of done with me at that point. It was weird. Mm-hmm. It was weird, but. Well, I do think when we make sort of an unconventional decision, some people feel as though our personal decision is a reflection on the decisions that they have yes. made in their life, but it doesn't have anything to do with them. Yes. But I mean, you know, I, I get it. I do. I get it. Um, because I think that there's in, in many people, um, a desire, you know, obviously to, to do something that's a little bit off the sort of normal, uh, treadmill, you know, that, that we're on. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's not perfect, you know, it, 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 and that's just the truth. I mean, there have been trade-offs, right? Like now that we are back in the working world, I mean, I'm lucky because I did manage to start a writing career, but financially we are not in the same position that we were in before we left. I mean, that is just the truth. That yep. is one of the trade-offs, For but sure. you know what? That trade-off is worth it to me. Yep. And, and there were many other trade-offs like that. I mean, we rent our house right now, you know, we don't own it. Um, because we sold our house and we don't know what's going to happen next and we're not ready, you know? So, so yeah, it's not like, it's not perfect. Everything in life, every decision we make is, we are sort of choosing one thing over another, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, my, you know, my decisions have led me in, in this, to this place and I'm happy to be here. You know, my biggest fear, which was that I would sort of always wonder what if I don't wonder about that anymore because I know. Yeah. And you a thousand percent don't regret leaving it all. Oh, no way. Like a thousand percent. There's not, there's zero percent part of me that regrets leaving. I mean, um, everything, like my relationship with my husband in the long run, I don't know if it would have lasted if we hadn't taken this trip because we sort of confronted everything head on in a way that I think in sort of normal life, we just don't sort of have the time, energy to, to deal with things in the same way. Um, I mean, I, I'm, a writer now, you know, I published a book and hopefully we'll publish more in the future. And, and I also think that like, you know, 
I, I'm such a better mother because of this, because mm-hmm. I, I kind of got to sort of, I got to learn about myself. I got to ask myself those big questions and answer them. And I think that if I had just kind of moved into motherhood, um, without sort of giving this to myself that I would have been a little bit resentful. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you, Kim. Um, answer one more question for me. So this podcast is called the same 24 hours and it basically means we all have the same 24 hours in our day. Mm -hmm. It's just what we choose to do that makes the difference between our health and happiness and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis consistently that just makes a big difference in your day-to-day life? Mm, Well, exercise, Mm -hmm. absolutely for me. And then in writing, I mean, I, love sitting down at my desk now. It is like the place that I just can kind of feel myself like settling into myself and allowing myself that time and space to just sort of connect with my um, inner person Uh and, and get that on the page. I mean, I have to do that every day. And there were so many years where I didn't do that. And I'm so happy I do it now. That's awesome. Well, everyone, check out her book, The Yellow Envelope, um, or Envelope. I say envelope. I heard you say envelope. (laughs) There's no right way to say it, I don't think. (laughs) Pecan, pecan, whatever. Yeah. Um, It's available on Amazon, and I saw your Instagram. It's in Target. (laughs) Yes. Which is very exciting. Um, And you can follow her blog at, is it so many places, but with dashes in between? Yes. Okay. And then her website is kimdinan.com. But um, I, you, this was very inspiring and I really enjoyed our talk and I'll look forward to following you on social media. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, take care, Kim. Thank you. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Sarah's amazing functional and beautiful bike racks for your car. Check out swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway for a Sarah's rack that they are awesomely donating as a giveaway for you guys.